This is Tom Lee, the Editor-in-Chief for NHM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Andy Racine. He's a System Senior VP and the Chief Medical Officer of Montefiore, one of the nation's largest health systems, and one that has a deep commitment to serving vulnerable populations in the Bronx and surrounding areas. We're talking with him today about he and, his, and how he and his system are thinking about the medium-term outlook for COVID. That is how they're thinking about the next two or three years. Andy's a professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, so he has a deep familiarity with the clinical and the scientific issues of COVID. He also has a PhD in economics and has a good grasp of the bigger societal issues for his region and the country. Before we turn to COVID today and COVID tomorrow, Andy, can you give our listeners just a very quick overview of Montefiore today? Absolutely, Tom. First of all, let me thank you for inviting me to participate. This is an excellent opportunity to cover some of these questions. So Montefiore is a very large academic health system that is in the Bronx, uh, Westchester, and the Hudson Valley. We've got 11 acute care hospitals within this system, about 3,200 beds, 30,000 employees. We're the largest employer in the Bronx, 7,000 medical and allied staff. We have an allied. Um, we have an ally in the uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine that is part of the monitor system. In addition to a nursing school, we essentially do everything from. We're a totally vertically integrated system in the sense that we do primary care. We have a very large primary care network, looks after about 300,000 patients. We have a home health care agency that delivers 700,000 visits a year. We do 3 million specialty visits a year. We've got a care management organization that coordinates risk-based contracting and manages patients when they're not actually in the exam room. We've got the first freestanding emergency department in New York State, a skilled nursing facility. A rehabilitation hospital. So this is a very, very large, comprehensive and integrated system that delivers essentially everything from primary care to heart transplants. So before we turn to what you think is coming down the pike, let me ask, how are things going now? Right. So this is a great question. And we're feeling, uh, as with many other parts of the country, an enormous sense of relief compared to where we had been. So what I mean by that is that if you look at our current inpatient census for COVID patients, it's now at about 100 patients throughout our entire system. At the peak of this uh, pandemic back in March and April of last year, we had 2,000 patients in our system. The number of people that are coming into our emergency department now that are testing positive for COVID is down to about 5%. And just a couple of months ago in the winter, that was up at 25%. We've delivered 130,000 vaccinations so that we feel pretty good about our current staff with regard to their vaccination rates, although we still have more work to do there. We started testing, which is another really important part of sort of maintaining our tabs on this uh, pandemic. We've run about a third of a million tests over the course of this past year. And when we used to be much more locked down, where visitation was restricted and our workforce was quite anxious about uh, about exposure, now PPE is plentiful. We're relaxing our visitation um, uh, pr procedures and policies. Our outreach to bringing in patients who we know have been delaying their care has been ramped up. We've got um, enormous amounts of um, 
of investments in telehealth and electronic messaging for our patients. And finally, we've learned a huge amount about how to care for this particular pathogen. And that has meant that our case fatality rate, which is one of the measures that we use for our effectiveness, is really less than half now what it was at the peak of the epidemic. All of which is to say that we're breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. We're not completely out of the woods yet. We know that there is work to be done, and we know that there are um, vigilance that we need to maintain. But we are feeling much, much better than certainly we did last spring or even than we did in the middle of this past winter when we were having our second big surge. So looking back at the last year, how would you say Montefiore did? I mean, what do you think you did right that kept things from being worse than they otherwise would have been? And is there anything you wish you had done differently now? Right. And that's a really great question that we ask ourselves really all the time. Looking back, I would say there are a few really critical things that I think we we got right. The first one was the issue of communication. And I know that may not sound like the top of the list for most people, but I remember distinctly the CEO of Montefiore, Phil Ozawa, who is also a general pediatrician, interestingly, um, came to the leadership very early on in this pandemic. And he said, you know, you'll be hearing a lot of these military metaphors with regard to the the confrontation with this pathogen. But let me tell you the only real metaphor that matters, and that is you need to be in constant, transparent communication with your troops. Because if you are, and you treat them with the respect of making sure that you're attentive to their anxieties and that you're giving them all the information they need as soon as they need it in a transparent, honest way, they will do anything for you. And he was absolutely right about that. Maintaining the efficiency of our operations was a question, really, of making sure that the people we were calling on to do this work felt that we were telling them everything that we possibly could about what we knew was going on. And so as a consequence, Dr. Oswald was on daily phone conversations, and it was a really – it was a conversation. It wasn't so he was just getting on the phone to deliver information. What he would do is he would solicit questions from the entire workforce, the 30-some-odd thousand workers in the workforce, and then he would go through the questions and answer. And some of these were really sort of tough questions about what people were facing and the things that they were concerned about, but he would not shy away from any of that. And that sort of authenticity and that constant communication and the fact that it was him, the CEO, who was delivering it, made a huge amount of difference in terms of how we managed to get through this. So I would say communication is a big thing. The second thing was, you know, and these are sort of things that you'll hear, I think, from lots of institutions, not just around this issue, but whenever there is an emergency, you need a sort of a leadership cadre that has situational awareness, meaning you have to have access to good data in real time, and you have to have people pouring over that data really several times a day to make sure that they are making the recommendations to the institution about how to confront the changes that they're observing in such a way that they keep on top of it and that they anticipate the thing that's coming down the pike. Finally, that I, I think the, the you know well there may be a, a couple of other things. One is that you have to know what you're good at. You have to exploit your comparative advantages. So you know we've got one of the nation's top 
medical schools in our system. And these folks very early on developed their own antibody testing. So we could do antibody testing very early in this pandemic because we had the clinical and the research expertise to be able to develop it. The same is true of our relationships with Abbott. We had been building this up for a long period of time. So when everybody was trying to get at reagents, we had this sort of pathway um, to do that. And the final thing was the attention to the mental health of our associates. Our psychiatry department was very aggressive very early on and proactive in reaching out to people, not waiting for them to get to them with problems, but checking in, particularly in the areas that we knew were the hardest hit, the emergency department, the ICUs, places where we were deploying ambulatory people to go into the inpatient service, our children's hospital where we were putting adult patients to be cared for by the pediatricians. These were very, very stressful times. And having the psychiatry department out there in front was a huge undertaking, really important for us. And then the last thing that I think we got right, which is very important, the last thing that I think we got right is that early on, a lot of the institutions around our area were playing music periodically throughout the day when we were discharging patients to indicate to people that things were not as bleak as they might have appeared because we were actually having successes. And the question early on was, what music are we going to play? And I remember distinctly being in my office, and I was sitting there with the system senior vice president for operations, Susan Green Lorenzen. And we were thinking about this. She turned to me and said, oh, I know what we have to do. I said, what's that? Alicia Keys, New York. That's the only thing we can play. But she was absolutely right. It was a fant it was anthemic. It was just it was fantastic. It encapsulated everything that you needed to hear. You know, if you're in New York, it's gonna be fine. These you know well, we're gonna have to play that I'm gonna have to play that right after we're done this podcast. But, oh, you definitely uh, should. It's a great song. It's a all right. Song. So anything that you wish you had done differently? Oh, oh, sure. There's plenty of things that we should have done better. Um, and I think a lot of this actually has to do with the fact that we had learned all kinds of lessons from previous brushes, if you will, with bad infectious pathogens. I think back to I think back to actually the H1N1 crisis back in 2009. I think back to the Ebola crisis in 2014. And we repeated and by we, I don't mean just monofure. We as a system repeated the same mistakes every time. We simply don't seem to be able to learn how to coordinate. What happened this time, which is exactly what happened with Ebola and exactly what happened with H1N1, is that each health system was on its own, essentially, to find the PPE and to source it, to buy it and to get it. Same thing was true with ventilators, with oxygen, with all of the things that you need in order to treat this pandemic. And that is a huge mistake. The reason we have supra-institutional agencies, meaning the government, is precisely to be able to coordinate these things so that essentially you're not finding everybody competing with one another for very scarce resources rather than trying to do this all as a single system. And we didn't do that this time. And it was a big mistake. Um, because it meant that all of the different institutions were anxious about what they were going to be able to get. The people that were working in those institutions felt that same anxiety. And although there were attempts made, and I have to credit the state government in New York for doing this, there were attempts made to try and do this. 
but it was nowhere near as complete as comprehensive as it needed to be. And partly, I think it was because they couldn't depend upon the federal government to deliver these kinds of things. But that's really what you need. When you are confronting a pandemic of the magnitude that what we were confronting, this is not something that institutions alone should be left to try and figure out. That's just no way to it's no way to run a railroad. And I don't think I don't think we did that well. That's a huge lesson to be learned, and it's a very learnable one. But now looking ahead, uh, we know you don't have a crystal ball, uh, but can you give us your best guess for you know what is going to what the fall and the winter are going to hold for us in 2022? And I guess there's your best guess, and then there's what you're preparing for at Montefiore: uh, return to normal, you know, another surge. Right, and these are. These are great questions, and there are um, infectious disease experts and epidemiologists that have far more expertise than I do about this. But I think the consensus is that while there may be blips that we're going to be confronting in the fall um, and pockets of areas where there may not be as much uh, vaccination as we need it to be, or there may be age groups that simply haven't gotten their vaccines yet, I think the magnitude of um, the response, the um, immune response based on both vaccines and previous infections will be such that we will not be experiencing next winter the kind of surge that we experienced this winter. And I think that's a good thing. Now, obviously, we're going to have to make some decisions with regard to how we run these institutions when we get to that point, meaning what we're going to do with regard to where we're going to put patients and how we're going to do visitation rights and what we're going to do with um, you know, these kinds of things. But I expect that we are going to have a much, much smaller surge, if at all, next fall and winter than we experienced this past fall and winter. And so what that means from the institution standpoint is that we're going to get to a point ultimately where, you know, the coronavirus too is going to be a a manageable pathogen the way we manage lots of other things. And now it's uh, clearly more severe than than uh, seasonal influenza. But you know, if you think back on it, Tom, you know, we usually lose between thirty-five and sixty or seventy thousand people a year for flu, and that's just in a normal flu season. And we have hundreds of children that die from flu every year. Well, I think what's going to happen is we're going to be a lot more cognizant of our ability to control the um, the spread and the dissemination of, of um, respiratory pathogens. And we're going to be doing things more routinely uh, than we have up until now. And by that, I mean essentially during these seasons, wearing masks and practicing some form of social distancing in order to try and cut down on the transmission rates. And I think we'll be that probably successful. That is one successful. of the stunning findings from this, uh, from this period, which is just how the, the incomplete adherence to social distancing and wearing masks led to such a decrease in flu rates, so much that so that uh, CVS earnings are way down because of people haven't needed to go in and buy all the supplies. But and it's not just flu. I mean, I'm a pediatrician. RSV. We we barely saw RSV this year in our hospital. Same thing for rotavirus, interestingly. We saw very little, very little rotavirus. Now, obviously, we have an effective vaccine for rotavirus, but nevertheless, if it's not just rotavirus, it's other, um, um, it's other infectious diarrheal diseases that we just saw a lot less of because of the way people were behaving during that period of time. So when then you look down the road, 2022, 2023, um, uh, what's what? What are the lessons learned and the 
the the the the probability that we'll be uh trying to control covid and other uh, other viruses um what does it mean for Montefiore and how are you thinking that um uh it should affect the way Montefiore works with other societal institutions I and mean, one comment i read by you was that you don't control pandemic in the hospital uh and uh so what should you know what's Montefiore health system thinking about uh that it should be doing to try to uh help control the threats of covid or other other you know other viruses going forward right uh, well, unfortunately, you've given me an invitation to get on a bit of a soapbox because I think about this a lot and I talk about it a lot. And I think the most important thing from the standpoint of health systems like ours is to maintain a certain degree of humility about this. And by that, I mean, if you look at what it is that are the determinants of health status of any population of people at any age in any venue, most of the things, if you're trying to predict variation in health status on the left-hand side of your model, most of the things on the right-hand side, the powerful predictors are things like genetic endowment, education, good nutrition, housing, clean air, clean water, no lead exposures. The receipt of medical services can make something of a difference in health status on the margin, but the coefficient of that variable in that model is small relative to those other things. Our ability as health systems to do this is not as great as we credit ourselves as it being, first thing. Second thing is that if you're going to think about those things and what contribution health systems can make, it's by trying to get those other issues addressed. So what does that mean? What does that look like for a health system? Well, for one thing, it looks like your health system has to be deeply, deeply embedded within the community of people whose whose care is being sought at your institution. You cannot you can no longer be in the in the posture of having people sort of come to you for high-end care and that's your responsibility. I mean, we deliberately over many, many decades now have disseminated a primary care network system throughout this community for this very reason. You have to be able to deliver care close to where people are so that you know a little bit more about what their needs are. From a pediatric standpoint, the other thing that I am very actually proud of with regard to what we're doing is the idea that 15 years ago, we came to the realization that if you're going to deliver primary care, for example, in pediatrics, you have to co-locate infant mental health in your primary care setup, because that's what is going to enable those children to grow up to be healthy. And that's also true of adults, by the way, so that we have, we have, we have the largest co-located infant mental health system in the country at a certain point. I don't know if it still is, but that's true. We have the largest school health program in the country because you're going to have to be able to partner with educational institutions in order to promote the health of school-aged children. And those are the things that are going to lay the groundwork for what's going to be coming down the pike in another generation or two. What's going to prevent, for example, the fact that we're going to have fewer cases of hepatitis and we're going to have fewer cases of liver cancer is because we're immunizing children against hepatitis B. 
we're going to have fewer cases of surgical cervical cancer if we can get our HPV vaccination rates up to 80 or 90%. And those are the things that you have to think about in a forward-looking way if you're going to be doing this. Now, the other thing about that is that you have to be willing to find out this information from the people who are coming to you for care, doing social needs assessments on everyone and being able to link them with whatever community-based organizations are available to help them with housing or clean water or their legal troubles or transportation or whatever it is that they need in order to be able to live healthy lives. And for a long time, this wasn't really considered the purview of health systems, but more and more, that's exactly what's going to be what's going to be the case. And so we're obviously very actively working in those areas as well. Well, this is exactly the kind of insight that uh, I was hoping that you would be uh, bringing to the audience today. Uh, you know, how Montefiore, with your, your very special culture and your challenging setting, uh, you know, the ways in which you are going beyond the boundaries of what people think of as traditional health care. Uh, and I do think that it's clear we have a, we, the rest of healthcare has a lot to learn uh, from you know the innovations that you guys are pursuing you know things like your school health program and I'm hoping that we'll be able to spread more of those through uh, through NEGM Catalyst. Uh, well, we'll be watching how it goes over the next year or two, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to you uh, for more of Montefiore's experience and insights. Uh, but thanks very much for your time today. Oh, it was a pleasure, and I really appreciate um, and I'm very grateful for you to have invited me to get to talk to you about this. It's obviously something that's of great importance to all of us, and I appreciate the time. Thanks.